Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is your co-host, Matt Zemek, along with Saqib Ali. Uh, you know, the, the tennis season winding down, that you have the Davis Cup, uh, the new iteration of it uh, in progress, but the tour season's over. So plenty to talk about. And also, we're going to talk about Peng Shui and that theater of very delicate uh, geopolitical, diplomatic uh, briar patch in which the WTA is trying to take uh, as strong a stance as it possibly can. But first, we're going to look at the, the tour seasons. And, and in particular, Sakib, as you uh, join the show, um, you know, you, you've done some uh, deep dive research into the meaning of you know, the year-end tour championships. And I know that you know, you're, you're a Boris Becker fan from way back. And when the uh, year-end tour championship you know, was played in Germany, that was a big deal. I know you have a lot of war stories from that. But like the year-end tour championships, that's something that you've studied very closely over the years. And you have some new information and perspective on that. So why don't you t- share with our audience some of the things that you found? Uh, yeah. Hey, Matt. And uh, hello, everyone. It's been a while. Uh, we did some Twitter spaces and I apologize. It's not on Matt. It's more on me. There are a few things going on at my end and just didn't have the energy or time to do a space or a podcast, but we'll be more regular going forward. That's a uh, intent. And this is more like a follow-up. And me and Matt, I don't know how many of you tuned up to the Twitter space during the year-end finals, the ATP finals, and, we, and same for the WTA final. And we both were giving our views, what it would mean and that time, both Muguruza and Zverev had not won the tournaments. They were still ongoing. What it would mean in terms of momentum uh, going in uh, for the next year, which is Australia. That's a big prize. And I just looked at the, some, some numbers, and I think I, if facts don't lie, I think my conclusion is, you know, uh, even go, given go, going back to the Boris Becker years, I think indoor tennis was a season in itself. And with era of specialists where the Brugueras and the Moosters and, you know, the Kafelnikovs will show up for French Open and the Sampras and Beckers and Rafters would be vying for Wimbledon, even though Rafter didn't win, but he was a factor in 90s and vice versa. Then Sampras Agassi for US Open and vice versa. So indoor was always about Sampras and Becker and before that Lendl. And now, of course, it had become about Federer and most recently about Djokovic. These are the five most dominant indoor players uh, in no particular order. So this was, I think, my finding, Matt, that no matter who won this tournament, it didn't really mean that person is going to win the Australian Open, especially as a breakthrough. The only guy, I think, who won the tour finals before he won a slam and he ended up winning a slam, actually the two guys, Andre Agassi and Daniil Medvedev. And then there are like guys like Grigor Dimitrov, uh, Sasha Zverev and Stefano Tsitsipas who won this thing but haven't won majors but are still active. So even the... You know, the great Becker, the great Federer, the great Djokovic, they won slams first. They didn't win this tournament, even though the indoor season had a meaning. It really was an independent, you know, icing on the cake. The eight best get invited. And it has a lot of momentum. Like I said, there is no stats for confidence. If a Zverev or a Tsitsipas can beat, you know, Djokovic or a team or a Federer, it means a lot, even though to the other guys, it's okay, it's best of five, still have to beat me. So I think that's one gray area. Like, you know, all the guys who win this and reside in top five, they can take loads of confidence in a matchup. But overall, this really hasn't been a pedestal. And this nothing takes away because indoor tennis was always different, be it carpet in Germany or be it these indoor hard courts in London and now in Torino. So, so that, that's my point. Unless, of course, you are Novak Djokovic, who's the only guy, I think if my numbers don't lie, he's won four World Tour finals and each four times when he won that, uh, you know, 
he also won Australia. Of course, he's won it five times, but he had the distinct, you know, uh, uh, honors of doing, you know, four wins in London and followed by four wins in Melbourne. Uh, Roger Federer has done it twice. Boris Becker and Pete Sampras, I believe, have done it one seat and no one else. So uh, does that mean like the guy who wins here in the end, uh, starting with Lendl, that's when I started following tennis. He used to win the Nabisco Masters when it was called at the Madison Square Garden. He didn't win Australia. He would reach semis. So I think it's, uh, on the men's side at least, my conclusion is it's, we cannot nullify whoever wins here, but at the same time, it's a very different ball game. And especially if you make a breakthrough here, that doesn't matter. It, it's going to set your season up on fire. Of course, it's and Zverev, more than Dimitrov, has proven to be more elite young players. But that, you know, that doesn't really mean it's going to be a stepping stone. Even, even Boris Becker, like in his comeback season 92, when he beat the world number one Jim Courier and won this tournament convincingly in one of the best indoor matches I've ever seen when he took out Ivanisevic. He loses first round to Anders Jared in Melbourne. I was doing some research. I remember that match. I was very disappointed as a fan. But, you know, the two things have their own merit. Becker, you know, wasn't a very consistent Grand Slam player. He won six times, but he had a lot of first round exits. But at the same time, he was, he, I can make a case he was as good an indoor player on carpet. And even the likes of Federer and Djokovic, if you throw back in those eras with those rackets, I'll, I, I won't be surprised that many will back Becker in those matchups. But that's a hypothetical scenario. So, yeah, I don't know if you find this interesting, but I, my conclusion is we have to treat year in final on the men's side as an independent achievement. It really hasn't meant as a breakthrough pedestal point for like many guys. Yeah, but established players like Djokovic, Federer, Sampras, and Becker have won Australia on the heels of winning the tournament, uh, you know, in, in November. But overall, it's been an independent, you know, kind of a achievement which deserves its own accolades. But it doesn't really say it's gonna you know, that X Y Z is gonna, you know, get a flying start in Melbourne. Uh, my main uh, follow-up question, Sakib, is, you know, do, does your perception of the prestige and importance of the year-end championships, and really not just ATP, but also WTA, does, is, is your level of, uh, uh, you know, estimation, your, your valuation of how important this is, is that affected by the fact that there isn't a best-of-five set final? Because um, we used to have that, and, and we don't have it now. Is that uh, something that really matters for your for you in terms of how you uh, value this tournament? It's a very interesting question, Matt. I'll probably tackle it a little differently. Yeah, best of five, there's a lot of merit. And even I think Hingis and I think Sabatini, if Hingis or Salas played best of five, I think, or Graf and Sabatini. Women had best of five for the longest time in this tournament as well. But I would think a lot of the tennis knowledge and a lot of the acumen and analysis, of course, it's inevitable recency bias, as a lot of people say, I think big three have kind of changed the landscape of the sport. I don't want to say ruin it because it's all three exceptional, like 60 slams and Djokovic and Nadal have a legit chance of increasing that mathematics. You know, Novak is a favorite. We all know that. I think what happened is these guys were winning tournaments and the year-end number one ranking was a mathematical formula. You have to get the better of these three guys. And between them, it was just the exception of Andy Murray who did it once. You have to win at least two slams. And... The Becker and Sampras era, even as good as Sampras was, he wasn't winning, you know, you know, three slams or two slams. He had some seasons. So a lot of the defining moments, say, in the Sampras-Agassi rivalry uh, would come down to Hanover or, or, or Madison Square Garden. And uh, 
And that's why that tournament had more significance because Marcelo Rios once said, this tournament is designed for Becker and Sampras to win. It doesn't give me or Moya or anyone a chance. So I think that's what has happened. Grand Slams have become the epitome more than ever. The three best players have dominated this and prevented others from reaching that ascension point. So a parallel conversation has also found the newcomers like Raonic and Nishikori and even, you know, sometimes Ferrer, sometimes Zverev. All these guys at, at some point have looked winded in a long season because uh, even Nadal hasn't won it. He's made four finals, I believe. So all these guys, including Andy Murray, have made the Grand Slams being the highlight. And this tournament has looked like a jaded event at the end where, and I think the biggest drawback, if you want to talk about it, is I think 1,500 is way too many points because this is like, like a hedge fund company giving out executive bonus. I totally am fan of the round robin and the top eight. There's a reason the race starts, but don't give them more than Masters 1,000 points because that's like 500 points is huge. You're giving, basically they're making the rich more richer. But uh, on the other hand, the women's side, like a lot of people said, Muguruza's win was refreshing. The tournament was more entertaining. We've talked about it. So I think uh, in the women's side, besides Serena Williams, there hasn't been like those kind of top three heavy rivalries. So whoever wins this tournament at the year end, I think can claim, and, and even the fans receive that in a slightly different light. That's how I see it. Because the women's tour has a lot of potential and, and a winner could come from any section of the draw. And the men's side are always about big three in the last year and a half is about Novak. And now Medvedev and Zverev and Tsitsipas are pushing their weight to become like legit, at least challengers to, you know, to Novak's throne. But I think uh, big three has just changed the math of greatness. It's all about grand slams uh, because, you know, I'm reading a Boris Becker book because I'm going to be doing a podcast on him soon. And there, there was like WCT World Championship of Tennis exhibitions, which players took seriously. So tour was structured very differently. Borg and Connors between them not going to Australia at all. Lendl Becker started going to Australia in 85, 84, if I'm, the math is right. So a lot has changed now, right? Australia is a happy slam. It was a neglected slam back then. So I know I'm giving a roundabout answer, but I think a lot of the narrative is driven by the success, exceptional success and dominance of big three because Sampras was a no-show at Roland Garros, except that one semis he made, he would lose first week more often than not like Roddick did. So year in championship had a significance. Becker would come back to life after disappointing US Open. He would be the man to beat in Germany. Agassi was a decent indoor player. So there was a lot of stakes. Now these top three guys, they qualify in July. That was never the case. <laughs> no one was qualifying uh, for year in championships in July, if I remember, or June. Like Djokovic, Federer, and Nadal have just, you know, their consistency has spoiled us. And I don't think we're going to have this kind of uh, expectation. And I think you're in championship in the post-Novak, post-Big Three world, I think will rise to some level of, you know, respect that the fans, and I could be wrong because I'm an old soul. So I still, you know, go back to 90s a lot. But I think once the Big Three movie and the chapter is over in next few years, uh, I think we'll have a very different way of viewing this tournament. All right, let's transition to the the uh, ATP finals that we witnessed with uh, Alexander Zverev beating Danil Medvedev in the final. Your overall impressions of, of the tournament and, and anything that you're taking away from it heading into 2022 and especially the Australian Open. Yeah, I think the space I clearly said, and you know, and that's on the eve of the Zverev Medvedev round robin. We did the space before that, and I said Zverev after losing to Medvedev in Bercy, they play very similar games and. I think he's going to fall short. And of course, Vera proved me wrong. He won uh, three out of five sets. 
the round robin match was very close and then the final was extremely close and then in the process uh Zverev also beat Novak you know who's arguably the the greatest indoor player of his generation uh you know if we leave Sampras and Becker aside so look i mean uh, not to sound like a broken record Novak losing to Zverev or Medvedev doesn't really mean much to him because Novak is in a league of his own and his sight is on slams and this year he played a very cut down schedule and we all see the result he put an all time record season uh, fell short of a you know calendar grand slam by three sets so we expect him to do more of that and Sasha Zverev has a very big task ahead of him because he hasn't beaten any top 10 player so and Djokovic is the toughest top 10 player you know so does it make anything look it's always a tale of two cities like the famous saying novak knows you know even for medvedev and novak is playing his best it's going to take a lot of effort to make it you know very competitive or the or the result go in favor of medvedev and zverev has a mountain to climb granted he's gotten better against djokovic four sets in australia and a very nervy performance when novak was not fully fit and then five sets in the us open in a competitive match but still went down 6-2 So yeah, I mean, if if you're Zverev, you think you have a chance because Novak is still the big alpha, the big question, the big target that you're all going after, and um, you know he'll be, you know, he did a smart move by not playing Davis Cup. I'm I've not followed Davis Cup. I don't know if you have, but looks like both Novak and Daniil are deep into this week. Their teams are alive. And as for Medvedev, again, you know, he's the class above than Tsitsipas and Zverev because he's backed up his hardcore resume since. the summer of 2019 he's looked every bit good and every deserving bit of a challenger in the absence of Nadal and Federer so i think the baton has been passed it's his ranking to lose it's going to take a lot of impressive tennis from rafa nadal to you know not saying he can't do it but you know to take over daniel medvedev in, in a mathematical ranking point next next year and who knows medvedev might be even number 1 because Djokovic has a lot of heavy lifting in slams to defend once slip anywhere and Medvedev could be number 1 for a few weeks. So Tsitsipas is another guy like who was part of the conversation and his, this uh, Masters uh, sorry year in championship ended prematurely he came in with a inflammation in his elbow and you know he couldn't compete. So I think the the top order is decided I think it's going to be Djokovic and Medvedev I'll give Zverev the edge over Tsitsipas right now but then it can change very quickly if Stefanos you know puts on a run early spring and zvera falters again in a best of five match but i think the order is established but novak is still the man to beat it's just hard to go against him when he's so focused and so driven will he be in australia that's a different conversation i'll put you on the spot for that if you have any views on what's going on but uh, the iran championship like i said is independent accolade zvera won it twice he's already in a select company but will it mean uh, he'll be in australia we have to see the draw but i think he's definitely on a short list he's the third best player right now to win the tournament but easier said than done yeah i mean you know with zverev winning and first off you know i complained about the uh scheduling that zverev got a day off and djokovic did not before their semifinal and we you know we should be able to come to an agreement on this but apparently it still needs to be said that the scheduling didn't decide the outcome of that match but it influenced it. There's a difference, all right? It didn't decide it. Zverev had to play well and he did. Credit to him. So he deserves it. But we shouldn't have scheduling influencing the outcome of a match. And the simple principle is what if the roles were reversed? It's not so much that, you know, if if they were competing on even terms, Djokovic would have won. That's not the foremost 
implied statement there. It's more of if Djokovic had a day off and Zverev did not, would the, would the match be anywhere close to how it actually played out? That's the most specific point that I'm making, is that if you have an imbalance in one direction, if you consider you know, if the imbalance existed the other way, would you get the same result? Would you get the same product? And I think it's pretty clear that you wouldn't. Um, so, you know, and we're also operating under the reality that the Australian Open finally, at long last, put both of its men's semifinals on Friday. So we don't have this absurdity. And of course, you know, Rafael Nadal fans are right to feel hard done uh, by that scheduling arrangement. It certainly influenced the 2017 uh, final. You know, you operate under the same principle. If Federer did not have the extra day off, would he have been able to recuperate physically for that final. And on the other hand, if you give Nadal a day off, an extra day off in 2017, after that really long semifinal against Dimitrov, you know, would he have had more fuel in the tank? Obviously he would have. So it's not so much, it's not entirely, it's not entirely about putting the two players on the same footing, though that is, you know, the principle of fairness that we're dealing with here. It's, it's coming from this place of if the roles were reversed, would you get the, a roughly equivalent product? And I think it's not even close. No way. And, uh, and that is why that is why we need to d- deal with this scheduling imbalance problem. You, and you do it simply by starting the tournament one day earlier. That's all the, the year-end championships. You know, this happened for the women, too. Uh, the women who had rest entering semifinals beat the players who did not. And so you just start the tournament one day earlier. If you, and you, everyone gets a day off before the semifinals. And on that day off, you play more doubles. You load the schedule up with doubles matches to fill in the gap. And so, you know, the, the, this stuff keeps coming up. The only, the final point to make here, Sakib, is that Zverev didn't even win his group. You know, Djokovic won his group. Zverev didn't. If we had a system at the year-end tour championships, let's say there wasn't a mandatory day off for everybody before the semifinals. Okay, in that case, you make sure that the winners of the groups get the day off. All right, because that's a reward for winning your group. But Djokovic won his group and yet was still the disadvantaged player. So at the very least, if you're not going to have days off, you need to build in incentives for the winners of groups so that, you know, by by doing better, you win an advantage, you earn an advantage. But this was just random scheduling uh, carelessness and it didn't decide the outcome of this tournament but it influenced it. And I'm really tired of that kind of thing happening at major tennis tournaments. Well, so I'll, I'll have a few things to say, but I totally you know, like your uh, overall larger stand irrespective of who was at the receiving end or which player. So you've always talked about an Australian Open is one where they finally got their act together. But this is a one-week tournament, and I have a couple of points to make. So look, the moment Matteo Berrettini was in a different group than Novak Djokovic, that group, like you said, would have played always on Sunday and at night. So, and when Berrettini went out, of course, Sasha Zverev and Medvedev were the beneficiaries because they got a Sunday start because they were in the Italians group and they wanted to play the locals, you know, on court, you know, evening demands like Becker in Germany was a huge thing and Murray in O2 was a huge thing. So I think that was one. Uh, but there is one point which I'm not going to say you're right. I mean, I, I, I kind of don't feel that strongly. You have to win five matches in you know, this tournament in eight days and there'll be one group that they'll, they'll always be at a disadvantage. But uh, Djokovic playing Nori in the evening match when it was a dead rubber, that was stupid. 
that again, I don't want to use words stupid, but you know, organization should have done better. Djokovic should have gotten the morning match. You know, there was no reason to put that dead rubber. And similarly, they risk Sinner and Medvedev to be a dread rubber the moment Zvera won his match, but they wanted that Sinner match in the evening for the locals or maybe something to be done for TV in Europe. They want more people watching. So again, TV dictates these tennis tournaments. A lot of revenue is coming from TV. We all have talked about this. Is it fair? Probably not democratically fair at all, but business dictates that. And Novak had an easier time. So I would say Novak didn't even say like he could have gone a few hours. I think he said that. But, you know, if you switch Zverev winning the tie-breaking against Medvedev, then Medvedev would have had played through enormous matches, Sinner and Zverev. Then you could make an argument that he deserved the day off. But you're right. I mean, if you want to do something about this tournament, Friday should be a day off for singles. So everybody, you know, is at the same uh, level playing field. I, I get that. But your second part, that Zverev didn't win his group, does not really hold water for me because the formula was already set in uh, play. You know, you play one group plays Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday, and one plays Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So no matter who won that group, will not, you know, that person would have played the second semis because Novak was playing Nori on Friday afternoon. So I think they could have done something for Novak. They could have given him the morning match and still made him play the noon semifinal or the evening semifinal on Saturday. But overall, I'm with you that, you know, something needs to be configured. Like, you know, so these these physical matches which have huge implications and no player should be at the receiving end of that. But I think it's bigger than the player. I think the tone was set. Whichever group had Berrettini, it would have started on Sunday. That's my take. And, it, and it's a fair one. All right, let's 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 move to the WTA finals. And, uh, you know, it, we had an interesting scenario in that, well, not just that the tournament started on Wednesday and ended on Wednesday, that was different, but also that, um, you know, if this tournament had been in China, that had been in Shenzhen, um, you know, would we have had the same outcome that we did? Because Garbina Muguruza and also Paula Badosa, you know, two Spanish speakers, like they were the fan favorites in Guadalajara. Uh, that really seemed to give them both uh, a shot in the arm. Uh, Badosa, you know, didn't win, but she was uh, an elite player in the group stages, making her way to the semifinals. And then, of course, we had uh, Muguruza, managing to go all the way. I think that's the main question. Do you think if this pl- if this tournament is played in China or Europe or, or anywhere other than where it was, um, would we have had the same outcome? Yeah, I think that's a very interesting one. And that's why there's a larger argument of moving this tournament around. And I think ATP, even though they stayed in Europe, I think they, again, sorry, I keep going to ATP because that's a little bit more of my bread and butter. No excuse when you host a podcast, you should know both sides of the house a little more. But I'll just say, uh, with the Mogaruta and Badosa example, that's a great example. It should stay in, in Mexico because I think ATP looks, okay, after big three, with Sinner, Berrettini, Muzetti, there's a good chance Italians will have a lot of say at the year in championship. And I don't know how long it's going to stay in Torino. Maybe it's only one year. But I think that's what they're planning. And you're right. And then I'll throw back it, throw this back at you with Marcelo Rio's comment. Do you believe these championships should be played on clay for both? At least mix it up so it's not like going into one player's wheelhouse, like the Beckers, the Sampras's, the Federer's, the Djokovic's. Of course, the latter two are like more competent on other sur- surfaces, unlike the German and the American I mentioned. But what's your take on um, moving it geographically so it can be a warm weather tournament in certain time zones and also maybe play out clay? A lot of people believe that should at least be in rotation as far as the surface goes. 
I think I think your your larger point about rotating the sites for year end championships. I think that's the key insight here. You know, to lock it into one city. Um, you know, it's not as though you know the year end championships have that fixed uh, identity on the tour because they've been moving around for years. You know, they were in Madison Square Garden. They've been in Germany, Shanghai. They've bounced all around. So the idea of one place getting that tournament or like an eight year blocker and, you know, London had it for over 10 years. Um, you know, that doesn't seem to make sense. Like this, this seems like the perfect tournament to give to a different city, kind of like what labor cups done, you know, with it, every year it's a different city. So that, that seems to be a, a logical idea to give more tennis fans around the world, a chance to interact with their favorite players with the stars of the sport, you know, the top eight plus the alternates. So that seems like a good idea. And if you're going to rotate sites, then it only makes sense that you rotate surfaces as well, right? I mean, if uh, if one particular, if you're going to rotate sites around the globe, some sites will be more in tune with clay, like in Latin America, Spain, uh, places of that nature. And then other sites, you know, in, in Asia might be more suited to hard courts. And then, you know, put, put the uh, year-end tour championships uh, in Newport on grass, you know, why, why not do that? Um, so this is just a chance for tennis to provide a lot more variety. And I'd certainly would, would say that it's fine if, if, if it's clay, I think really the problem is why is it so uniform? You know, why is it always hard court? And let's remember, uh, when it was at Madison square garden in the eighties, that was a carpet tournament. And so that was, that brings up the point that, you know, we should have more variety, more differentiation in tennis so that when these elite professionals go through a year, they're getting many different kinds of tests and the overwhelming dominance of hard court on the schedule. It really takes away from our sense of, you know, which player is, is the best suited on all surfaces. Now this, this takes absolutely nothing away from the players, particularly Novak Djokovic, uh, you know, who have been so phenomenally dominant uh, historically dominant. Djokovic's record is is second to none. Well, we don't really need to discuss that. But nevertheless, it, it would be quite revealing if the players on tour had to go through many different surface-specific challenges. And of course, we've seen a narrowing of that, not an expansion of it uh, in recent decades. It's very It's very different from how it was in the 1970s and 1980s, I, I certainly understand the need to have hard courts um, because it means less preparation on site. It means an even neutral bounce of the ball. But like you can get that on carpet. You know, carpets carpet does not have the uh, the spinny organic bounces uh, of clay or the bad bounces that you might get on grass. Like the carpet is still a neutral surface. It's going to be faster than hard courts, but it's still neutral. Um, so yeah, I just, the larger point is, is that the year end championship seems to be the perfect Petri dish, the perfect place for tennis to experiment and also give more fans in more cities around the world, a chance to buy tickets to, to, to a premier tennis events. And that's a way to grow the sport. And like, if, if, if you're trying to grow tennis in a particular part of the world where uh, you know, the ATP or the or the uh, WTA thinks the sport is underdeveloped will give them a year end championship. Uh, and maybe the crowds won't be huge. I mean, in Guadalajara, um, the night crowds were certainly electric, 
some of the uh, crowds for the afternoon matches, certainly in the first few days of the tournament, weren't that big. So did it matter that those first few daytime, day session crowds in Guadalajara weren't big if the nighttime crowds uh, were really huge? See, I don't, I don't think that was really a net loss for the WTA. I think people around the tennis community uh, across the globe were really uh, impressed by the show that Guadalajara put on. Um, they, it, it certainly seems to be a site, a venue uh, that the WTA should come back to. But now let's give that opportunity to other sites. I think that's really the biggest point from your remarks, that it's, it's precisely the kind of event where you can move it around and give more tennis fans a chance to experience the sport up close. Yeah, definitely, because uh, world-class players always make it to this. So it's not like giving a city a 250 or, you know, that kind of an event to work and, you know, beg a lobby for stars, depending on where they're in the calendar. I think no matter where you put it, the best will go. So, and, you know, Muguruza and Bedosa's popularity uh, shows, like, why after a long, tiring season, players can be propelled with crowd support. And uh, this is a classic example. So fully agree there. All right. So, you know, what we've just discussed, Saqib, um, you know, it, it leads into some other broader conversations. But, but first, before that, uh, you know, so Muguruza winning this title, how, how would you say this shapes up her 2022? And, and maybe you might not know how her 2022 is going to go. None of us do. But like, What's your ex- set of expectations for her? And what do you think should be the set of expectations for her after winning the year-end championship? Because we know the talent's there. You know what I think about her. You know, she's the female Stan Bavrinka that, you know, at any moment she can turn on the switch, uh, unleash her big game, her long strides, which enable her to cover the court. I mean, obviously has the power, obviously has the stroke production. It's, it's all there. And she almost beat Naomi Osaka in Australia. And that was one of the most significant matches of the season. Um, so what's, what's your set of expectations for Muguruza after her year end championship? I think you nailed it, right? When you've been calling her the Wawrinka of the WTA and how she just shows up against the biggest players. And she has the range, the game to back herself in most situations, in most courts. So, yeah, I mean, she winning this title and she looks in a very good, uh, frame of mind. She looks happy. Uh, Again, you know, basking for more success. Yeah, I think this kind of sets expectation, doesn't it, right? Uh, She played that phenomenal match against Osaka. Who knows what would have happened had she converted on the point. She could have won the whole thing. And then she also played a final, I think, not too long ago against Sofia Cannon. So yeah, she definitely knows. She's no stranger to success in down under. Her strokes kind of suit the game, you know, with with the heat and humidity. No matter the surface, I think the conditions kind of become dry and quick. Yeah, I mean, if she's coming in with no injury and she's coming with a fresh, you know, mindset, I think uh, she could be one of the few players to beat. We have to look out where she lands up in the draw. Draw is always huge. So definitely uh, what I was saying on the men's side, especially, it hasn't really meant much because the indoor season has its own uh, way of announcing the champion at the end. And that doesn't really mean much, uh, you know, unless you're an established player like Djokovic or Sampras. So I think, yeah, on this side of the house, I think... uh, we don't know, like, with the what's gonna, what kind of frame of mind, uh, what kind of form Barty's gonna be, will Osaka play, and uh, so I think, yeah, Muguruza definitely winning this. Uh, I like to contradict myself on WT. This is a very good chance of carrying over. If she clears first few rounds, watch out. 
I think I think that's the right way to calibrate it. That if she gets through the first week, gets a sniff at the quarterfinals, then she's she's going to be probably the player to beat entering the round of eight. Not entering the tournament, but entering the round of eight if she gets there. All right. So I referenced earlier, you know, when you were talking about how the year-end tournament, the year-end championships should be moved around the world, that that um, led to a conversation about broader issues. And that broader issue really is Peng Shui, you know, with the WTA taking the very strong stance of suspending uh, all tournaments and activity in China, uh, unless the Chinese government begins to uh, deal with this Peng Shui situation in a very serious, legitimate, productive, tangible, visible, honest, way um you know so you know in terms of it raises the larger question sock above you know if, if, a, if a given government if a given state uh nation state uh you know does not fulfill certain demands in terms of meeting human rights and uh you know treat, treating people humanely that you know the wta has set a precedent now that you know we're not going to do business with you so so many different angles to this. What, what's your overall reaction to what the WTA has done and, and what you think this means for tennis in the future? Perhaps, you know, should the ATP quickly follow suit? You know, we've, the ATP's had the Masters Series in Shanghai, didn't have it this year because of the pandemic, and Indian Wells, you know, being played in October. So a lot, a lot to, to consider here. What's your overall assessment? I think I agree with you. It's a, it's a larger point. And uh, first of all, I want to say bravo to WTA for, you know, for making the stand and, you know, they've kind of set the stage and then they back the, uh, back the initial talk. So yeah, really, really good for them because like this is more on, on human grounds and this is about safety of a player. So yeah, really kudos to them for taking a stand. Now the big question of course is will ATP follow suit now because tennis as you know, we all talk about the tennis leadership, the tennis, the governance bodies are never really, in the same room, forget about the same, you know, same place. So ATP players have shown, you know, support when the situation was developing, but now is the time to show solidarity. But then the big question would be what kind of business ATP is willing to compromise because ATP, I was reading somewhere again, I'm out of my depth that ATP might have more business interests uh, in China than compared to WTA. So now that also puts a larger question like you want to show solidarity to a fellow player on a on a parallel tour, or you're going to look after business interests, which of course are not easy to sometimes, you know, get out of. But uh, yeah, I think the ball is an ATP scored, and we all look look at them to do what is right. But uh, again, out of my depth to comment on a podcast, but China definitely works differently than most part of the world. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, what the ATP leadership. I'm sure they are not just like forgetting this event. I'm sure they're negotiating it in their own capacity what the best step is because there'll be a lot of questions coming their way pretty soon if they don't, if they don't act in solidarity. Well, and I think, you know, the, there, there are a lot of uh, political landmines I could step on here. And, uh, you know, I might, I might wind up stepping on one or two of them. But, um, you know, we, we can't really step around these kinds of problems anymore. And I think that we have. And some people listening might say that, you know, if the United States takes a hawkish or very strong stance on China, that, you know, it's 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 uh, that there's a racist component there um, you know, that that may or may not be true. 
But I think we have in in a sensitive political and diplomatic uh, situation such as this, we can't worry about the effects of any strong stance in any direction. That if if you take a strong stance, you know you're going to upset some people in the room. You're you are going to disturb the situation as it exists. The idea that there is a disturbance-free way to deal with any of this—that really, I think, is the ultimate fallacy and the ultimate mistake. And so, you know, Matt Matt Willis over at the Racket. Uh, again, you need to subscribe to his newsletter. Absolutely outstanding, detailed, level-headed, measured analysis. Uh, he came out with a very probing, uh, thoughtful piece on the Peng Shui situation, and he said that you know, as much as we are applauding what the WTA is doing. And let me be clear, I definitely applaud it just as much as you, Saqib, just as much as pretty much everyone else is. Matt Willis made the point that the the WTA stance, as impressive as it is, it's certainly raising some complexities for Peng Shui personally. Like this is going to, this pushback against the Chinese state, you know, it's not, it certainly doesn't make life easier for Peng Shui. I mean, it's, it is advocacy and on behalf of her, it's support of her, so that's undeniably good. But in terms of how Peng Shui handles her situation, wherever she is, however well or poorly she is faring, you know, this this throws up some complications for her. So like the idea that there's a perfect solution, the idea that there's a solution which won't create significant complications and difficulties, we need to get away from that. And so uh, th- that that really is one of the big picture things we need to keep in mind. And so as we move forward, you know, Joe Biden uh, has the, you know, Olympics in China in February. That's right around the corner. Uh, There's been talk of a diplomatic boycott, not boycott uh, of the Olympics in terms of athletes, as uh, Jimmy Carter did in 1980 uh, in Moscow. And the Russians then boycotted the 1984 Los Angeles Olympics. He's just talking about withholding dignitaries and diplomats. Uh, you know, any, any of the all uh, governmental figures, they would n- not one of them would attend the Beijing Winter Olympics in February. So when we talk about something like that, I mean, that is the attempt of that or and the implied meaning of that is that, you know, we we in the United States, I mean, the message it's saying, the message it, it is meant to convey is we in the United States care about human rights. China, you're you're not meeting the standard on human rights, so we're going to boycott. Now, the the substance of that kind of act, the the sentiment attached to that kind of act might be good, but then the Chinese government, Saqib, is going to turn around and say, wait a minute, President Biden, wait a minute, United States, you still have kids in cages at detention centers near the Texas-Mexico border. Are you really going to say that you are this beacon of human rights and we're not? The, the point being that if the United States is going to take a larger stance on China and kind of support the WTA, something that, you know, on the surface is obviously very reasonable. It certainly sounds like an enlightened, natural, logical thing to do. The bigger point for everyone listening here is that the United States needs to get its own house in order. That doesn't mean it shouldn't make statements against China, that it shouldn't, it doesn't mean it shouldn't consider uh, significant actions against China. The point is simply that if you go- are going to act against China, if you're going to take a more hardline stance against China, you have to have your own record. You have to have your own track record 
of being, if not unimpeachable, certainly, you know, very close to it on human rights. And there's lots of ways, lots of ways in which the United States treatment of uh, immigrants, illegal or not, you know, people seeking asylum near the border and just, you know, working class Americans has not risen to a good standard. Look at what's happened in the pandemic, you know, with workers being asked to go back to their work sites without having mandatory paid leave, without having various OSHA you know, occupational safety hazard, uh, you know, uh, protections. There, there are so many things that have not been done for millions of Americans in the middle of a pandemic. We don't have guaranteed health care. You know, it's just been free COVID shots, uh, but not free health care in a pandemic. There are so many ways you can look at what the United States has done, or at least has allowed to happen since the pandemic began and say, we're not a very good human rights country. And, you know, many people uh, with a certain ideological bent will say that's hogwash, you know, China, that China's the enemy, we're not, we're the good guys. But, you know, if we're going to be honest about kids in cages and not giving all our citizens free health care and not providing mandatory paid leave and forcing workers to work on site instead of remotely, instead of giving them an extra round of checks, you know, and more economic protections and safeguards that they don't have to work if they think that their health is going to be compromised. You know, so it's not about saying we shouldn't act on China. That's not it. It's that if you're going to act on China at a larger governmental, diplomatic, geopolitical level, the United States has to get a lot of parts of its own house in order. And that, that's a very inconvenient thing to say. But if we are talking about applying maximum pressure on the Chinese state to do right by Peng Shui and by, by association, any other athletes you know, who, are, who claims to be sexually abused and, and by Chinese officials or other government officials in any, in any country in the world, you know, you have to have your own record in order, and the United States does not. That that has to be part of the larger conversation here. I think well said, and that's a very powerful way to end this. There's nothing I could say, uh, you know, uh, could top that out because I'm in, uh, you know, large agreement with what you said. And this is the most political I think we've been on our podcast. We usually steer to tennis terms and tennis topics, but I think Matt said something very important and it's thought-provoking. And hopefully the listeners will engage on a further dialogue because, you know, uh, these things are complex, the complex world we live in. Uh, you cannot take an, you can take an independent stand, like Matt said, but then there are implications because once you are powerful and you have responsibility and you stand for something, then, you know, you do leave the door open and people can reflect how you run your own country. So on that let me, note, let me just, stock- let me just add, let me sure, just add briefly, sure, sure, stock- yeah. you know, we're, <laughs> let me just add very briefly. We've also seen this in the NBA, right? With LeBron James, and Steve Kerr, you know, talking about human rights, but then as soon as the conversation moves to China, uh-oh, they they don't have anything to say. And Enos Cantor, on the other hand, has spoken out about China. So like Enos Cantor, uh, you know, maybe you could pick apart the flaws or imperfections in, in some of his arguments on, on other subjects. But on this, like he's been consistent. Like it, it's not, it was not convenient for him politically or commercially to speak against China, but he did it. And the, you know, the NBA wants to grow into China. The NBA has a Chinese marketplace. We remember Yao Ming, the Chinese player for the Houston Rockets, brought a lot of money and exposure uh, into to, to China uh, for pro basketball. 
So, you know, there are lots of commercial conflicts. The ATP is dealing with those in China right now. Not very well, people would generally agree. And so when we talk about how to really resolve these kinds of conflicts, such as the Peng Shui situation, it's not going to be just a, a tennis association, which is going to do it. We need help from governments. We need help from other invested corporations. And that's where having your own human rights record being strong gives you leverage over a government that you think is not measuring up on human rights. That's part of the larger piece of the puzzle. So let me ask you one more thing then. So you think if ATP or NBA, whoever, you know, is reconsidering, but they have a lot of business, you know, stakeholders in China and there's a lot of, you know, revenue coming through there. So you think it cannot be a knee jerk, okay, like reaction, okay, we are done. So it could be a strategic pullout. Again, now, you know, we're going into very different territory, but you think ATP is considering it, but they probably can't react the same way because there's more financial stake. So they might just pull out slowly. That's possible. I think the larger thing is we need to have interconnected action, Saqib. You know, it has to be the ATP, not on an island, but with the NBA and with Biden's State Department and with other governments, you know, in Europe. I mean, plenty of other governments around the world do business with China. So it's not as though it should just be the United States. You know, this should be a unified front. But China could look at the various players on the global map and say, hey, you're doing this exploitative thing. Why are you going to lecture us on being uh, repressive? You know, it, it, so it has to be action has to be on several fronts. It's not just going to be like Joe Biden makes a statement or Joe Biden makes a, a declaration. It needs to be the government with corporations and with the most directly affected stakeholders all acting together. That requires many different people in many different countries on many different fronts, and they all have to realize that if they aren't promoting human rights where they are and what they're doing, that undercuts any leverage they have in asking the Chinese government to do better in terms of perhaps arranging some kind of agreement or deal in which exchanges are made. Like, we're going to give up this, China if you do this positive thing with Peng Shui, you know, where, where are the bargaining chips in all of this? You know, human rights obviously should be safeguarded on their own merit for its own reason. Like there's, you, you don't, it's not something that you, you consider doing, like you, you always have to do it. But the point is that upholding human rights is also, in addition to being inherently right for its own sake, it is also a bargaining chip and a point of leverage if you ever are going to ask a repressive government such as China for a favor. You have to be in a position where you, you have the high ground, and therefore, when you ask China to do something, China might be in a, a better position to respect you. So human rights, it, it means something on its own sake for reasons which don't need to be debated, but it is also a potential bargaining chip, and that point has to be kept in mind. Yeah, I think uh, agree. Uh, let's uh, end, end it here. A lot of thought-provoking observations. And like I was saying, yeah, we'll be back with another episode. Hopefully the listeners enjoyed this episode after a bit of a hiatus, but we'll be doing more shows in the coming weeks. Thank you, Matt. It was, uh, again, a fun episode and very informative episode. I learned a few things in the end. Thank you, Sakim. And we're all going to hopefully get some rest in, in this off-season. It's been, it's been a pretty wild year. 